day. Um, it is a special day. And at the same time, <laughs> every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every first day of the week for us is the day that we remember that you are risen from the dead, that we gather together, not at the, not at the end of the week as was uh, originally set out, but we gather together at the first day of the week. We want to give you the first fruits. We want to give you the, the first day of our week. We know that when we give you the first day, something happens so differently in the other six days. And so we've come, Lord. And for some, it is a, it's a sacrifice of praise to be here this morning. For others of us, this is, just, this is where we love to be. This is where we find our true expression of ourselves as lovers of God, lovers of Jesus. That when we get lost in worship, we not only hear your voice, but we hear our own true voice. So now as we, we look at your, your resurrection, as we look at what took place on that first Sunday, so many years ago, that first day of the week. Lord, will you speak to us? Will you speak through us? Will you bring a new level of faith, a new level of belief? Hmm. Even as I say that, I just I see the Lord just moving among the chairs right now. Moving from person to person. Because he is alive. And because he, he wants relationship with each of us in this room. And the Lord, is just, the Lord is calling you by his love, by his power, by his life, into life with him eternal. You're good at making yourself known, Lord. We welcome you to do that. Come, Holy Spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Would you read this scripture with me? This is, I know it's a little small. It's a test every week to see how good your eyes are. But we're going to ask if you, uh, I like it when you read out loud with me. So we're going to read this from Luke 24. It's the account that Dr. Luke has of the resurrection on Easter morning. So let's, let's read this together. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Wow. Just let that sink in. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Now... Some of you are used to this, so we, we need to do it because it's Easter Sunday. So I'm going to say, he is risen. And then you're going to say, he is risen. 
Okay, you ready? He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. <laughs> There's power in verbalization. Declaration has power. There are three things just at the beginning here that I would, I would like to state as a declaration to you of the belief, not only of myself, but of the belief of this church, of the belief of the leaders of this church. Number one, and, and, and it sets up the other two, Jesus is definitely risen bodily from the grave. He is alive. It's not just an empty tomb. We are talking about professional soldiers who were the best at execution that the world has ever known. They knew and they assured that Jesus was most sincerely, surely dead. And then when they came to the tomb on that morning, he was not dead. He was not stolen. There were two angels there as witnesses, and later he himself appeared to his disciples. Up to the number of over 500 people witnessed the living, breathing, speaking, eating, fully alive Lord Jesus Christ. He is risen indeed. But it wasn't the end of the story. He ascended into heaven. And even now, he has taken his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. And what he has accomplished through his resurrection is that even now, Jesus is the rightful ruler and will set right the things that are wrong with the earth. And there are some terrible things wrong with our earth. I mean, it it is not wrong of us to look and to see that this thing that went on in Kenya... This, this, these pictures of the brutality and of the, the, um, the cruelty of that situation begs for the third thing to be stated and to be understood and to be held on to by people who love the Lord Jesus, and that is Jesus is coming again. And it is not wrong for us to look at the thing in Kenya, the situation, the crisis, and say, come, Lord Jesus, now. (laughs) I, I have known and believed in the second coming of Jesus since I was a kid. So my favorite thing when I was a kid was when I, there was a test or homework I had not done was to say, come now, Lord Jesus. <laughs> he never did, though. <laughs> or at least rapture me now. You know, just take me home now. Kind of thing. There is this sense in which, whether it's the trivial kinds of things that overwhelm us, or the the world affairs that overwhelm us, our hope started with the resurrection. That life doesn't end at death and continues in the fact that, that Jesus didn't remain here on earth in, the bodily, in his bodily form, but rather having gone to heaven, heaven is now invading earth. He is the rightful ruler, and when he returns, and he will return, he will set all things right. But he is incredibly patient. 
He is incredibly, incredibly patient. There are times in the scriptures, I'll tell you of one just very quickly, when those who stood for him were being persecuted, particularly one who is known as Stephen. And there is a story in the scriptures, and it's so beautiful, where Stephen is standing up for the Lord Jesus in, in the face of religious persecution. And he's, he's declaring the Lord Jesus as Messiah and Savior. And as he does so, they take up stones and they begin to stone him till he's dead. But before he dies, <clears throat> he sees a picture. Not a, not a, not a, not a vision, friends. Not, he sees the reality of how heaven is invading earth, how heaven is intersecting with earth. And the veil is pulled back, and what Stephen sees as he is being killed for his faith, what he sees is not the Lord Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, but the Lord Jesus standing to welcome Stephen home. It's one of the most powerful images. You see, because what was accomplished... In the resurrection, the ascension, and what will be finalized in his return is that he has defeated our truest enemies. Now, please, please do not get me wrong. We have a personal enemy. There, there really is. There are personal beings who are evil, who have supernatural powers. The Bible explains to us that, that our God created both the heaven and the earth. And he created angels and he created humans, as well as all the things that we enjoy here on earth and all of the creatures here on earth. But there was this supernatural realm, and it's called the heavenly realm. And in that realm, he created angels. And out of those angels, there was one by the name of Lucifer who, who in the very presence of God, in the very temple of God, chose out of pride to decide he would put his throne above God's. And he deceived a third of the angels, angels with supernatural powers and with with authority and with territories and with with, uh, realms and levels of of power. And he, he deceived a third of them into following him into this rebellion. And he is real. And there are parts of the world that you go to and you, and you sense even more powerfully and strongly the darkness of the evil that these particular fallen angelic beings have over territories. There are some territories that you go into and it's as if you fly into an open heaven and then there are some places you, you go into and you immediately sense the darkness. This is not an easy thing to say, but there is a, if, if you're spiritually sensitive and you drive out of New York into another state and then you drive back into New York, you will sense a spiritual darkness that you don't have in other states. All you have to do is fly into LaGuardia and suddenly you become anxious. You begin to, you begin to go like that. And everybody, you all, we all think it's because, you know, it's because it's LaGuardia and you're flying. No, it's, you are, you've been out of the territory. Now you're in the territory. And immediately you are responding to the territory. There's darkness. It is real. But, but even though we have these literal, personal beings that are against us, that's, 
they would have no effect on us except for the two real enemies that you have. And the Bible calls these two enemies sin and death. You see, if sin was not a part of what, you know, of, of your old nature, of your, what's even called in the Bible your sinful nature, that there is a predisposition in you to rebel against God, to live independently of God, to live in such a way as to not want to even conform to the will of God, but only wanting everything to conform to your own will. In some ways, sin could be, in a pragmatic way, defined this way, that you have legitimate needs, and sin is the illegitimate way that you try to meet them. Another more theological way of looking at it is there's, there's a standard, there's a, there's a will that God has revealed. In a way, you could call it his prescriptive will, that he has prescribed for you how to live. And sin is that part of you that says, nobody tells me how to live. Nobody tells me what to do. I will do it myself. I will do it my way. Now, it's funny that many people who live utterly idolatrous lives and independent completely of God still love to blame God for the bad things that happen. We want to live independent, but we want to have someone to blame. Which shows the very, as, the, the very aspect of sin that I'm talking about. So on Good Friday, on Good Friday, God who is holy chose to treat the righteous one as unrighteous. Now, I love just defining this a little bit with you, that righteous means that you are right with the law. In other words, to be righteous, you can have nothing against you, nothing written against you, no warrants against you, no cases against you, nothing whatsoever could be found against you. And as I have often said, I guarantee you most of us in this room have something against us just for parking in Nyack. <laughs> Sometimes I get a cup of coffee there and it costs me $50. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, it, it is impossible, friends, to go through this life and not sin. So when the book of the record of your life is opened up, there will be warrants against you. There will be indictments. Because not only does God look at what you do on the outside, he also looks at what you do on the inside. Here's the beauty of Good Friday. It says, the Lord took the unrighteousness or the iniquity uh, of us all and he laid it on him isaiah 53 said all we like sheep have gone astray each of us has gone our own way but the lord was pleased to lay the iniquity or the sin or the guilt of us all on him now when i first learned that verse and started using it to try to share with people to come to jesus i i would get a book and i would get a book and i would say look Let's imagine that this book is the record of all the sins, all the thoughts, all the words, all the actions that you've ever done. And, and we take that book and say, this life of sin 
is your life. And the Bible says the day is coming when that book's going to be opened up and everything that you thought was secret is going to be revealed. But here's what that verse says, and this is what happened on Good Friday. He took that record book of sin and he laid it on Jesus. He was pleased to lay the iniquity of us all on him so that now my hand is free and my book is clean. See, on, on that Good Friday, he took that claim against you. He took those accusations against you, those indictments, those judgments against you, and every single one of them he bore completely and totally the punishment of it all, and the slate is wiped clean. That's so amazing to me. Because most people would want me to be held responsible for what I've done. This is why all this week I have been, I've been overwhelmed by this thought that God treated the one righteous man unrighteously so he could treat the unrighteous as if they were righteous. That what Jesus deserved, I now receive because what I deserved, he received. But see... As beautiful as that is, as powerful as that is, if he stayed in the tomb, it would not matter. All it would be is a grand gesture. All it would be would be a lovely moral example. Oh, what a powerful thing. He loved us enough to sacrifice for our sins. Isn't that beautiful? But we would still be held in death. The reason that only the Son of God, the reason that only one who came from God could do this for you is because if you go down into death in your own strength, in your own volition, in your own choice, if you go down into death, death has claws to hold you. It'd be about like the way they used to throw bodies into the East River and make sure they had weights on it so that it would stay oh they probably still do that right <laughs> you don't want it floating back up well, what happens is the weight is already there it's automatic that when you go down into death in your own name and in your own strength and in your own life you go down to stay there is no buoyancy there's nothing that makes you float. You're down for the count. But when Jesus went down into death because he was a righteous man dying for the unrighteous, C.S. Lewis, Lewis calls it, there's a deeper magic. When Jesus went down, death looked for something against him and could not find it. Death searched everywhere to try to find it. Even in his trial, if you look, they couldn't find witnesses against him. They had to pay people to lie about him so that when death looked for something against Jesus, it could find nothing. And on the third day, death said, I can't hold him. Now, maybe to some people that, that, that doesn't blow you away like it does me. But to think that the two greatest enemies I have... Now, I, I'm not discounting Satan and the demons, okay? Please don't misunderstand me. But I am saying my biggest enemy is me. Hello. Me too. 
It's that attraction and appeal of sin. That when I get hurt, I want to go to something to comfort me. That when I want my way, I want whatever leverage will get my way. When life doesn't go the way I want it to go, then I want to rise up in the full stature of all my personality and everything else and get my way. That when I'm alone, I'm dangerous. And when I'm with people, I'm even more dangerous. And what did he do? He broke the power. He broke the hook that hooked me to unrighteousness. He broke the hook or the weight that carried me down into death and didn't let me back up. This is what he did for you and me in the resurrection. If, if you would read the red letters for me. This is what Christ has accomplished for us. A new power is let loose in the world. The power to remake what was broken, to heal what was diseased, to restore what was lost. See, this is by defeating sin and death, he has released a power that was not before that even understood or known or experienced in any way. Everything before the resurrection was hope. Now, everything after the resurrection is looking back in faith. You don't create this power. You don't create this new day. You enter into this new day. He is still raising the dead. He is still healing broken hearts. He is still getting rid of sicknesses and diseases. And he is still bringing death from life. Life from death. Listen, I have in my life, I have now seen three people raised from the dead. I've seen three people who were dead for either hours or, or um, uh, up to six hours. One little child in, in Uganda we saw come back to life from the complications that come from malaria. She had died, and her mother had her in her arms, had this child for hours, six, six seven hours, and when the power of the Lord came, when the breath of the Lord came, the child breathed again, began to laugh, began to dance, began to sing, began to jump up and down right in front of our eyes. There's no, there was no other explanation. She was very dead. She was very dead. And her mother was grieving her loss. I've been in situations where doctors came in and said he died on the table. And where we began to pray because I didn't feel like it was time for this particular one to go. And we rallied and prayed and the Lord spoke and said, begin to thank me. As we began to thank thank the Lord for the life of our brother, the doctors came in and said, we don't know how, but he has been resurrected from the dead. We said, well, we know how. (laughs) Been in another situation where a young woman was run over by a bus and was not breathing and was, was deprived of oxygen for a number of hours. The doctors completely said, this, this is a teenager. This teenager is dead. They call us up. We are on a prayer team. It was at a conference. We were on a, on a prayer team. And so we began to pray because we were the only ones privileged to the fact that this, this young woman was dead. We began to pray. There was uh, one of our worship leaders here 
in the early days was David Bancroft. And Dave, uh, Dave was like, I am not accepting that verdict. And as soon as he said that, we began to say, he's right, let's, let's pray. And so we began to pray, and we began to get insight, and we began to get words of wisdom, words of knowledge about that, ch- that young woman. And uh, we got a call back within three hours, and they said, we don't know how, but she's alive. And then they said, but we're pretty sure she's, she's going to be brain dead. So we went to prayer again. The young woman is not brain dead. She's perfectly fine. She walked out of that hospital and actually attended the conference two days, two or three days later. With, with no, cons, no of the side effects of a brain injury because God is still in the business of bringing people. There is a power. There is a power that has been recreated. Now, why am I pushing this on you? And some of you will not receive it because it's very hard for you, but here is the thing. There are many things in your life that until you believe them, you will not experience them. There are many things in the spiritual realm that they exist and they are true, but the fact you don't believe it means you are excluded from experiencing it. And here, if I could, if I could just illustrate it to you with two parallel ideas, okay? The first, the first parallel is the idea of faith and trust, okay? Take your hands. Let me just see you're with me. Faith, faith. trust, okay? Your left or right hand, doesn't matter, all right? All right, now, the other hand. All right, take the other hand. Courage and confidence. Okay, so what happens to many of us is that we long for confidence. People come up to me all the time and say, I don't have much self-esteem. I don't have much confidence. They pray for me that I'll have self-esteem and I'll have confidence. And I... I, I I'm a very nice guy. I wear a bow tie. I'm a very nice guy. Okay? But I'm, I'm looking at him, and I'm going, how do, I, how do I make you understand that's not your issue? Your issue is never self-esteem. Your issue is never confidence. Because if, if, if you're going for confidence without courage, you'll never have confidence. Confidence is what you have after you've experienced something again and again and again, and you know it to be true. The same is true with trust. Trust is always performance-based. You will only ever trust something that lives up to your expectation. For example, right now, you trust the chairness of your chair. (laughs) Not a single one of you is sitting there going, will it hold me, will it hold me? There are a few of you that are trusting it so much that you're taking a nap in Jesus right now. (laughs) So you have utter confidence in the chair. You have trust in the chair. Your entire weight is on that chair. And basically it lives up to your expectation. Now some of you have put some indentations in there, but... but, uh, Because it's your chair, you know, it's your chair, you're there every week. All right? But to get to trust, to get to the place of confidence, you have to risk. You have to start believing something you haven't believed before. 
in order to experience something that you can confide in and trust in, you have to step out of your comfort zone. You have to step out of your already, you know, world of experience. And you have to go where you haven't gone and do what you haven't done. And you have to believe when you're doing it that the one calling you to it is faithful. And trustworthy. This is why when Jesus rose from the dead, he inaugurated for us an entire new age of power and healing and, and, and restoration. But he needs people who have courage. He needs people who will, who will step out in faith and become those who then have confidence. Because they trusted and relied on him, which means in order to have courage and to have faith, you have to risk being wrong. It would be nice if every step of faith was an easy one. It would be nice if you knew what the outcome of every step was. And it would be nice if you, could, if you were able to say, everything I hear is right and true and going to happen. But what you find is the life of faith takes you to places that show you what a fool you are. It shows you how quickly you believe something that is not true and are deceived by things that are not true and how quickly you go back to fear instead of courage. The very first thing that the angels have to say to the women in the tomb is do not be afraid. The first thing that Jesus has to say to his disciples when he appears to them after his resurrection is do not be afraid. Because there's some part of you that is resistant to getting to confidence. It's resistant to getting to trust. And that part of you is that part that says, I want to be comfortable. I want to be safe. I want to know that I'm not going to be wrong. But it takes a group of people who begin to say something new has been inaugurated. Something new is taking place, and I am a part of it. The ancient Israelite scriptures were right, and that heaven and earth were, after all, the twin halves of God's created reality, designed eventually to come together. Suppose that what has kept heaven and earth apart all this time is that the human creatures who were put in charge of the earthly part of this creation had rebelled and that their rebellion had generated a sufficient head of steam for earth to declare, as it were, independence, the desire to rule itself. And suppose that this self-rule had become extremely powerful, keeping the two spheres separate and effectively tyrannizing earth with the regular weapon of the tyrant, that is, death itself. Will you follow me in this? The creator God had finally come in person to break the tyrant's weapon and inaugurate the new world in which the original purpose of creation would be fulfilled after all. This is what it seems the early Christians believed was going on when they met Jesus, very much alive again and appearing to be equally at home in heaven where they couldn't see him and on earth where they could. Think back to what was said earlier. What we are witnessing in the resurrection stories, which obviously are quite unlike any other stories before or since, and therefore invite the skepticism they have received as much in the ancient as as in the modern world, what we see in the resurrection is the birth of new creation. 
The power that has tyrannized the old creation has been broken, defeated, overthrown. God's kingdom is now launched and launched in power and and glory on earth as it is in heaven. If you could see this with me, this is what I've been meditating on all this week, and I just wanted to share those, those words with you. What we see is that God created heaven and earth at the same time as twin halves of the whole. But through sin, sin which in this case is characterized by rebellion, which says, I want to be independent from God, from the Creator. I want to do my own thing. I want to do it in my own strength, and my own power. That rebellion has, has as its end, death. It's just, it, it, it's just the tyranny of, this, of the old age is that, that because of sin, there is death. And what Jesus has done is he's taken those twin halves, heaven and earth, and he's the place where the two meet together, where heaven is now invading earth and earth is close to heaven. You and I have to be those who don't just look and see the old tyranny and give up. Or see the old, you know, the old realities of sin and death and just give in. It is for us to step up in that courage I talked about and in that faith that I talked about and to begin to say everything can change. To be those like Jesus where heaven meets earth in you. Where earth is close to heaven in you. Now why do I say that? Well, because the kingdom of Jesus had inaugurated, and I like this, these adverbs, strangely, mysteriously, impartially during his public career through his healings, his feastings and teachings was now unveiled in a totally new dimension. This is the real beginning of the kingdom. Jesus' risen body, his risen person, his body, his mind, his heart, and his soul is the prototype of the new creation. So when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation, he's basically saying this. If you have come to faith in Jesus, not you've come to a religious ceremony or you've come to be behaviorally modified, But if you have come to say, I have lived independently and it does not work. I want to depend. I want to lean. I want to rest. I want to put all of my confidence and all of my trust in a resurrected Jesus. And believe in your heart that he restores what has been stolen. That he gives back. (laughs) That he makes it better than ever. And you believe that, then the experience is there for you to say, I'm a new creation. Jesus was the prototype. He was the first fruit, but I'm one of the fruits. I'm one of those who is alive. And begin to believe and know that by stepping out in faith, stepping out in courage, you are bringing resurrection power to your home, to your work, to your friendships, to your marriage. But if I were your enemy, 
then what I would keep you believing is that basically you're only subject to sin and to death. And so that the only real purpose of your life is to survive till you die instead of realizing that the resurrection calls you to flourish. It calls you to thrive. <laughs> In some ways, I, I like the word thrival even more than revival. Well, this is, this is an important part about that, this power. Now, here's the problem with some people. And all of us have probably done this. If suddenly you realize, I'm alive in Christ. Christ is alive. He's coming back. And you get all excited about it. And you start just judging everybody and picking on everybody. And start saying, what kind of an idiot are you for not believing what I believe? And, you know, you reprobate, you horrible degenerate, you know. And you just, you know, and you just... You know, you put up signs in South Carolina that says turn or burn and, and uh, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And you think somehow I am doing God a, a, a service. But of anybody who had the right to gloat after the resurrection, it would be Jesus. His first words could have been, I told you, knuckleheads. <laughs> Right? I mean, some of you in here, this would be, those would be your first words. Because you've said it to me before when I made mistakes. But what does he do? He goes and meets his followers. Think about where they're at emotionally. They're devastated. One is so guilty, he goes and kills himself. The other is so devastated because he knows what he said. He knows on the third time when he was asked, do you know Jesus? He swore, which means he said, may God kill me if I know that man. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, and the rest of you disciples went on a boat with that guy? <laughs> you would have wanted a lightning rod when you're around him. What, is, what does Jesus do? Well... Number one, he calls them by name. That's an act of intimacy. Calls them by name. First thing he says is, don't be afraid. He explains to them what's going on. He deals with each of them individually. See, it's important that you understand that this new creation is not us gaining power. It's us having lost access to the love of God now being right in the, right in the flow of his love. So a beautiful way of looking at everything that happens after the resurrection as, and bringing about this new creation is that it simply overflows with the love of Christ. There is a love, a deep moving warmth that goes out from Jesus. This love is strong, powerful, life-changing, life-directing. New creation has begun, and its motivating power is love. There are two stories really quickly that are given by Dr. Luke. One by Dr. Luke, one by the Apostle John. The first is these two guys on the road to Emmaus. They are two of Jesus' disciples. They're talking with each other about what's going on in Jerusalem. Jesus joins them and begins to walk with them. And it says that he opened up the scriptures to them. And they said that while he was speaking, the words of God not only became understandable to them, but burned in their hearts. But it's funny, they didn't know who he was. Because he didn't fit their paradigm. He wasn't supposed to be there. 
So since he wasn't supposed to be there, obviously he wasn't there in their minds. Until suddenly he revealed himself, and then they realized this is Jesus. But the whole way, wouldn't you and I have been saying, don't you people know me? I mean, are you so blind? You, I've been with you three years, and you don't know who I am? I mean, just that, that anxiety inside of us would have been, come on. Well, what does he do? He loves them all the way, even though they don't recognize him. Listen, there are some of you in this room, Jesus has been investing in you your entire life, and you don't know him. He's been pouring love since you were a baby. And, and maybe everything else around you didn't go well or didn't go right, but if you look back, he's been putting tokens of his love in your life even when you hated him or did not even know him. You see, because even when you act unloving, he cannot deny his nature of love. There's some of you that, that you have rebelled against him and you've tried to hurt him and you've tried to say, you know, I'm going to hurt you, God. I'm gonna, and all you've done is hurt yourself. And all along the way, he's been investing his love in you. Because even if you are faithless, he will remain faithful. And then the, the one with Peter, he's so loving to Peter. He says, do you love me, Peter, over and over again because he knows Peter doesn't love him. Peter loves himself. Peter was in self-preservation. He couldn't love Jesus because he had himself in that place in his own heart. And yet Jesus just keeps lovingly restoring him. Now, in my own life, death has been a very powerful thing. When I was in the seventh grade, I had a dream that I died, and it felt so real. I, I was falling, and I was certain that I was dying. And as I went into death, and I know it was just a dream, but it was so real to me. As I went into death, I had nothing to hold on to. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a church that preached the gospel, and I knew the gospel, but I didn't know Jesus. I knew about Jesus. I knew about the gospel, but I didn't know Jesus. So when I went down into death, I was all alone, and I screamed, and I yelled, and I said, save me, Jesus. But I still didn't know him. I didn't know who he was, really, who he was to me. I had not given myself to him, and I still wanted to live my own independent life. Well, a few years ago, now it's five years ago, I got a word from an intercessor that clearly said that, that I was going to die and that I was going to die on a missions trip. And the, the effect of that was very powerful because this person was accurate and very uh, someone we could trust in terms of the word that was spoken. And so I began, to, I began to examine my heart. And when I examined my heart, there was absolutely no fear of death whatsoever, which was radically different from when I was in the seventh grade. Because you see, now when I go down into death, I do not go alone. Death can no longer find any offense against me because I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. I'm covered in the sacrifice of Jesus. And because death could find nothing in Jesus, it finds nothing in me. And so when malaria hit me and invaded my blood and attacked my heart, and when I was on death's door and so many in this church prayed for me, and there were significant times of healing that came because of the elders, because of my wife, because of the intercessors, because of friends who came and prayed, that new power of this new era that was inaugurated by Jesus, the kingdom has come. 
Heaven has invaded earth, and heaven invaded my, my body, and malaria was not allowed to stay. The doctor said to me, I should have died. They can't understand why I'm still living. And I said, because the kingdom has been inaugurated. But what might have been more powerful than anything else, than, than even living, might have been more powerful to me, was the fact that every day as I faced death, I did not face it alone. It was as if the tenderness of God enveloped me and his hand was in my hand. And no matter how brutal, and the pain got brutal at times, my fever was 106. And it was, it was horrible, horrible pain. And yet his tenderness and his presence. And, and I, there were two things that I said in the face of death. One was, if this is all you've got, you don't have much. And the other, the other was, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I could never have said that without Jesus. Because he lives, I live. And even if this body has to be taken off, we will continue on if you're in Christ. Would you stand with me? Um, I want to, we're going to have, we have prayer ministers up here. I, I'm going to actually mess up our schedule just a second here, okay? I sense some of you are afraid of death. I sense some of you also have not known what it is to really step out in faith and courage. So I'm inviting you. I don't know how many of you will come, but I'm going to stand right up here. I'm going to ask you to come to me because uh, I'm not afraid of death. Not because of me, because I met Jesus, because Jesus already has defeated death. And when I faced my own death, I could see there was no record against me anymore. And if I died, I would be with him forever. I'm saying if you have some fear of death and you want to you give your heart to Jesus today, if you are hearing me say you need to step out in faith, you need to have courage in order that you can have confidence and trust, and you're, you're believing the words that I'm saying, that there is a launching of your life into a new power that overcomes the brokenness, the sickness, and anything else that you're wrestling with. I just invite you in front of all of these people today on Easter Sunday, first step of boldness. Come join me and let me pray for you. Would you come? Are there others? Come on, there are others. I think there are others. Pastor Dan, you want to come up here with me? Steve, come on up. I want you to pray a prayer with me. I want you to just close your eyes. I'd ask that the rest of you, if you're, if you're in Christ, would you just, would you hold out your hand as a blessing to these who have, who have come up here? We believe that Jesus died, but that he also rose again from the dead. 
and that, uh, that you never have to live another minute by yourself. We believe that independence doesn't work, but that utter dependence on Jesus brings life everlasting. Jesus himself said he came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. So I'm going to ask you to make this, these statements with me. Would you say this after me? Lord Jesus, I renounce my fear, and I renounce living in fear. I renounce being independent, and I confess my dependence on you. You are my Savior who died for me. You are my Savior who rose again for me. You are my ascended Lord. And you are my Lord who is coming again. I choose boldness, courage, faith in your finished work. Transform me now from the inside out. In Jesus' name. Now, I'd like you just to, just to put your hands out. I just want to pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I loose a courage over you like you've never had before, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is right now raising you up over every challenge in your life. That you were not, you were not ordained or assigned to fail. You were ordained and assigned to overcome. And right now, the, the very power of the Lord Jesus, I see him lifting you up, lifting you out of circumstances, lifting you out of fear, lifting you out of failure, and saving you and putting you on solid ground. That just as he has an empty tomb, you have an empty tomb. And that you are walking as living men and women in the power of the Holy Spirit. And for Jesus' sake, amen. 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 Our elders, they're just going to, Patricia, they're just going to put a touch of oil on you. Just to remind you of this day. The oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom to be bold. Freedom to be faithful. Freedom to step into new territory. I see the Lord taking you where you always wanted to go, but were afraid to get there. Let this, let this prayer come forth from our elders and our leaders now. If they're, Jesus, we bless you. We bless you want everyone to receive that the Lord is risen thank you for being here on Easter Sunday I would uh, love it if you'd give each other hugs maybe four or five people at least and that uh, you would share that love of Jesus with one another